here and this is the final episode in our best of 2023 series here on this is hell i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live stream and podcast host chuck mertz producing is rebecca ridenauer with will ippen shadowing rebecca today rebecca how was your first week back from your winter break you know it was just fine just adjusting adjusting to a new year i know the adjusting is always really weird to do after the holidays and that's actually what i'll be talking about on uh patreon this week and will uh when do you go back to teaching classes uh right after mlk day oh really yeah so you get to celebrate mlk day because that's a big day for celebrating right sure is (laughs) uh my first week back was a bit of a culture shock as it always is as it appears it was with rebecca as well don't get me wrong doing the radio show is what i love to do more a calling than a job but it's always a bit of a hurdle to get over when coming back from relaxing time with family to doing a show the content of which is so hellish we called it this is hell rebecca please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience this week's question from hell is what will you do after the fuel runs out what will you do after the fuel runs out you can leave your uh answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can tweet it at us on x at this is hell radio you can post it in on our uh, Patreon page if you're a subscriber at patreon.com slash this is hell or in our discord community or you can email it to us at chuck at this is hell.com or you can even post it in our Facebook group page welcome to the hell hole but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner on today's final best of 2023 this is hell episode we are sharing an interview with a guest who has been chosen by listeners to be featured during our year-end best of shows every year since 2018 that's six straight years although may i may have said seven earlier this week on the show it's actually six six straight years of being selected by you as one of the best guests and conversations of the year in 2023 our guests returned to the show to talk about their latest book on the history of Washington, D.C. in the 20th century and how D.C. reflected Southern Jim Crow racism in the United States and put it on display for everyone from all over the world to see, including world leaders, whenever they visited D.C. Yes, the world was watching in the 20th century, and what they saw was a very racist America in the nation's very racist capital. So, coming up, it's an interview with Gerald Horn, and we will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell and announce a winner. And we'll tell you what's happening on next week's shows, including our first live guests of 2024. The only radio show podcast or live stream where we give you a 100% guarantee that the guests are smarter than the host. This is hell. And now with special thanks to listeners Hugh and Ashwin 
for the sixth consecutive year during our year end best of best of series featuring the fa- your favorite interviews uh, here on This Is Hell for the entire year. Here is our 2023 interview with historian Gerald Horn. This is hell. This is hell and the great fortunes that have been made by the United States have been built not only on genocide and slavery, but also on exploitation and inequality that are uniquely American. Here to help us understand how that all played out in the capital of the United States, the very first chocolate city, we are very happy to have back on the show. Historian Gerald Horn, author of Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. It's always great to have you on the show, and it's always great to hear your voice. How are you doing? Oh, you know, it could be worse. <laughs> That's the best way to describe everything, I think. You write that in Washington, D.C. in 1919, Carter G. Woodson, dubbed as the father of black history, thought he was about to make history in the worst way. He was near Howard University, the historically black institution within walking distance of the White House. And then there, then, uh, there sped by him, he recalled, a Negro yelling for mercy as he was pursued by hundreds of white soldiers, sailors, and mariners, mariners uh, assisted by men in civilian attire. They collared the young man, then deliberately held him as one would a beef for slaughter. Then they shot him. The stunned historian scurried away furtively, as fast as I could without running, is how he put it, while expecting every moment to be lynched myself. All academics did not react in Dr. Woodson's manner. A Howard professor, described as militant, built a barricade festooned with guns. He and his comrades then engaged in watchful waiting. As one writer put it, the professor, using a rowdy principle, had opened up a new and decent area for Negro habitation. Thousands of fine Negroes live there now as reform emerged from the barrel of a gun. At that time, what sparked that moment of violence? Were these completely random acts, or was racism always seething under the surface in Washington, D.C., and waiting for an excuse to unleash deadly racist violence? It was more the latter. The immediate trigger were inflammatory reports in the Washington Post, then as now the leading publication in the nation's capital that suggested that uh, black men were manhandling and roughhousing Euro-American women. And that was taking place against the backdrop of World War I, where the United States had been forced, as ever, to conscript black men to go abroad to fight, fight purportedly for freedoms they did not enjoy. They came back, some of them trained in weapons, and unwilling to accept the racist status quo. Uh, That vignette involving Carter G. Whitson is the immediate paragraph that starts this book, Revolting Capital, which talks about uh, how Washington has been faced with this contradiction. That is to say, at the same time that the United States was purporting to be the paragon of human rights virtue, you saw that Washington, as your opening word suggested, could fairly be characterized as chocolate city. How was it that the capital of a white supremacist state came to have a black majority? In order to understand that, you have to understand slavery ending in the United States in 1865. Keep in mind that during the bad old days of slavery, 
Washington, D.C. rivaled New Orleans as a slave trading market. That, too, cast a blemish on the reputation of the United States during the antebellum period. But the issue that I focus on heavily in the book at hand is the fact that when African and Caribbean nations began to surge to independence post-1945, post-World War II, uh, Washington found itself in a contradiction as it was seeking to appeal to diplomats from these nations who, when arriving in Washington, oftentimes were treated like U.S. Negroes. A so-called reform was uh, devised whereby these diplomats would be given buttons to wear on their lapels to show that even though they were black, they were not black Americans. But obviously that did not fly, not least because uh, black Americans could counterfeit uh, these buttons. And so this creates a dynamic where Washington has to engage in a halting retreat from the more horrible aspects of Jim Crow. But at the same time, Jim Crow, of course, being U.S. apartheid, U.S. Uh, racism by law, but obviously this was disconcerting and angering to many who had grown comfortable and accustomed to U.S. Jim Crow, U.S. apartheid, which creates even more problems. And then there's the other issue, which I talk about in, in, in the introduction. Uh, Washington is probably the most heavily surveilled city in the United States, if not on planet Earth. Not only do you have the Metropolitan Police, you have police departments across the river in Virginia, across the border in Maryland, you have Secret Service, you have FBI. The Federal Reserve has been authorized to have its own police department. You have park police, et cetera. And as a footnote that makes it all the more curious what happened on January 6, 2021, when apparently flying under the radar were insurrectionists who were seeking to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. And as many commentators suggested then and now, uh, if that had been Black people uh, seeking to prevent the peaceful transfer of power, well, first of all, it would have never happened. And second of all, there would have been uh, blood in the streets, uh, certainly more than you saw on January 6, 2021. And that brings me to the other aspect of Washington being the nation's capital. That is to say, I recount episodes where anti-war demonstrators clogged the streets of Washington, preventing Pentagon chiefs from motoring to the White House to devise bombing campaigns against Indochina and against Vietnam, uh, some decades ago during the height of the war in Vietnam. And so Washington is not just another U.S. city. It's a pivotal city, not least because it is where power is exercised. And also it has a intermittent black majority, which makes the rampages of gentrification in Washington, which is now unfolding, in some ways a national security question. Yeah, we had a really great discussion with uh, Tom Frank, Thomas Frank, about that when his book uh, Wrecking Crew came out uh, several years ago, and that's fascinating. The uh, twenty, the late twentieth uh, century, early twenty first century history of gentrification in uh, Washington D.C., which you touch on as well. But symbolically, when there was this kind of resistance, even armed resistance to white violence in Washington D.C., did this mean for the greater United States? Uh, when there's this, you know, when black Americans in the nation's capital were standing up against white violence with violence of their own, did that lead to blowback 
nationally? Did that kind of moment in history make the rest of the United States, you know, we, we know about what happened in Tulsa. We know about what happened in the early 20th century with so many attacks on uh, economically and financially successful uh, black communities. So did this have a link to, did the uh, violence, the anti, or the, the violence against the white violence, did that have any impact on the United States nationally? Did that lead to more of a blowback against African-Americans across the country? Well, it's a mixed bag. First of all, let's look at the question of gun control. Uh, given the fact that gun control is basically a dead letter, despite all of these massacres that take place, for example, in Buffalo, New York, Uvalde, Texas, et cetera, you had bipartisan effort towards gun control in the late 1960s, not least because you had the arising of the Black Panther Party started uh, in a sense in Oakland, California, but of course having a militant chapter in Washington, D.C., part of their mantra was confronting the police, oftentimes with arms in hand. Uh, You may recall that it was on May 2nd, 1967, that the newly formed Black Panther Party invaded the state capitol in Sacramento, California, and that too led to gun control efforts, indeed led by then California Governor Ronald Wilson Reagan, who then subsequently became a staunch opponent of gun control. So I would say that on the one hand, the fact that you had these Black people arming was seen as a cautionary note by many of the rulers of the United States, perhaps making some more prone to push reform, not only with regard to uh, gun control, but with regard to other measures. For example, that's the heyday of affirmative action uh, recently given its death blow by the U.S. Supreme Court just a few days ago. At the same time, there are Panthers still in prison to this very day as a result of their armed confrontation with the state. Uh, There are Panthers buried in graveyards too numerous to mention not only Panthers, but Panther supporters because of their armed confrontation with the state. So uh, in some, I would say it's a mixed bag. So let me get back to that just for a second. So how necessary and important was violence in the early days of Washington, D.C.'s struggle for black liberation? How important was it to have a violent reaction in order to continue any project for black liberation? I would say it's one factor amongst many. I would say the leading factor in helping to explicate the agonizing retreat from the more hard aspects of Jim Crow is the international situation, what I just mentioned with reference to uh, helping to appeal to African and Caribbean diplomats in a Cold War context with the then Soviet Union and the United States feeling it would be disadvantaged as a result. That sets the stage because keep in mind, that if an alien arrives from outer space and studies the history of the United States, that alien may look back at the bloodstained history of the United States. Uh, For example, peaceful protesters being mowed down in the streets like they're some sort of wild animals in the first part of the 20th century. And then you have the March on Washington of 1963 when 250,000 amass peacefully. Uh, which leads directly to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 
which supposedly was designed, among other things, to make sure that Black patrons could visit restaurants and hotels. Now, in light of the recent Supreme Court decision, once again, out of Colorado, where a web designer is not obligated to accept the business of a gay couple, uh, lawyers, including myself, have raised the possibility that on that premise, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, or at least that portion I just rendered, could be ruled unconstitutional. Now, I think that that's a stretch, but uh, who knows, given the nature of this U.S. Supreme Court. So I, I would say in sum that violence is a factor, but I think it would be reductionist to say it's the sole and exclusive factor in explaining reform. And you mentioned that speaking from Kansas City, John Bruce found the real cause of these outbreaks in early 20th century Washington, D.C. was the unusually large number of Negroes in public office. In a city that would deliver a black majority shortly, these well-dressed, well-housed, educated Negroes were frequently seen in automobiles on Pennsylvania Avenue, a central artery, and some there was a peculiar mixture of racism and class resentment with Dr. Woodson as an ostensible target. Is... You know, there's always this binary of race or class, and I know that every binary has a shortcoming. Is a class war then a race war in the United States and vice versa? And are both white-based class and race violence resentment against democracy? Are these fights against democracy and possibly even in support of authoritarianism, dictatorship, or even fascism? Well, I think you're onto something. In fact, as you know more than most, that was the import of the book we discussed on This Is Held about a year ago, on my book on Texas slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of U.S. fascism. The only footnote that I would add is that I think that there has been a mischaracterization with regard to what has been called the race question, at least as it pertains to African Americans. Because slavery was the ultimate class question. That is to say, you have a class of unpaid workers. And I think that part of the mistake that has been made even by radicals in this country is a failure to acknowledge that fundamental point, which then leads them to misunderstand why there have been fissures in the working class as a whole. The fissures have been characterized as race fissures, that is to say, why is it that uh, poor coal miners in Kentucky oftentimes do not want to join hands with uh, black proletarians in Chicago? But it actually, in a sense, goes back to the 19th century when there was a difficulty in workers who received wages joining hands with workers who did not receive wages. What that also suggests is that when the workers who did not receive wages were able to break the chains, break the shackles of slavery happening in Haiti, circa 1804, in the United States, 1865, this uplifts the working class as a whole. And that is a point of history that I would hope our radicals and even liberals could begin to focus on. You mentioned a businessman named George 
Calavatinos, who uh, was speaking to Congress, and he told them that he exhorted that since 1776, the nation had never been faced with a more critical situation as we are confronted with today. This is in 1960s Washington, D.C. Born in the District of Columbia in 1921, he acknowledged freely that what I am called is a slumlord, and presumably from his tenants, he learned that planned guerrilla warfare is now in our land, with key activists following the same tactics as Fidel Castro. In fact, he claimed many of these punks were taught by the Cuban leader, his temper flaring. He challenged the many who say dictatorship is not the answer. Well, he clucked. I say we could use some now. According to Nile University, an Egyptian research and entrepreneurial school, fascism is a mass political movement that emphasizes extreme nationalism and militarism, while dictatorship is a form of government where the leader of the country possesses absolute power. Is the goal, then, of white supremacists and those who oppose black liberation dictatorship, as the businessman Calavitinos suggested? Or do, do you think it is fascism, as so many critics on the left have claimed? And does it make a difference? It probably doesn't make a difference, particularly to the ultimate victims, who I would characterize as being black people or those who may be sympathetic to black people. And I add the latter because recall that in my Texas book, I point out that also subject to being pulverized in Texas post-abolition of slavery were those Euro-Americans who were seen as overly sympathetic to black people. In fact, if you look at the cover of my book, it's a picture of a mass hanging of white men uh, who were perceived as overly sympathetic uh, to uh, the newly uh, freed enslaved. Now, I should also add that if you look at the New York Times today, there's an op-ed actually by University of Chicago law professor Sonia Stark, who says that the next stage for the right wing after overthrowing affirmative action is to get rid of diversity, irrespective of whether or not their qualifications. That is to say, uh, even if um, you have a uh, prize-winning black astrophysicist who wants to apply to the University of Chicago, uh, but uh, he could be turned down. In other words, it would be a great leap backwards to the bad old days of Jim Crow, which meant no matter how qualified, quote unquote, you were, uh, you could be turned down. And of course, there was an attempt to keep you from being qualified by making sure you went to inferior uh, schools. Washington, D.C. has been an exemplar of this trend that I'm talking about, because keep in mind that Washington, D.C. was formed as a compromise with the slave-owning states. Recall that George Washington, after he was elected, uh, he was ruling from Philadelphia, he was ruling from New York, and finally, the slave-owning leaders wanted a capital that was in their jurisdiction. So Washington, D.C. borders Virginia, the premier slave-owning state, and it also borders Maryland, which also was a slave-owning state. And during the 20th century, as I describe it in the book, Washington, D.C. Uh, was... Uh, weighed down not only by the kinds of uh, elites that you just described in that quote, but look at the football team. Sports oftentimes is a useful prism through which to view and analyze U.S. society. Note that until a year or two ago, the Washington football team, well, I'm reluctant to mention the word, but for educational purposes, I will, 
It was the Washington Redskins, which, of course, is a uh, disgusting nickname for a professional team. For a good deal of its history, the Washington so-called Redskins were owned by George Preston Marshall, who was one of the last pro football franchise owners to move towards desegregation, that is to say, accepting black football players in a league which is now about 70% black. So obviously, uh, he was consigning his team to not doing well on the gridiron, which obviously, once again, it helps to contradict some of our friends over at the University of Chicago who suggest that the lure of the dollar and the lure of profit and the desire to have a number one football team whereby you would make more money uh, would not make this effort towards segregation by George Preston Marshall possible. But obviously, he, he put certain values above the value of making money. This was happening in the nation's capital, the nation's front yard, at a time when Washington was preening on the global stage as the paragon of human rights liberty. Obviously, something had to give, and eventually something did give. That is to say, the agonizing and reluctant retreat from the more horrible aspects of U.S. apartheid. And we were very honored to have Vernon Belcourt on our show of the American Indian Movement, who was part of the campaign, or the leader of the campaign, to get rid of the racist names that we did find in uh, with sports teams. So earlier you likened the U.S. Insti uh, American institutions to those of... Apartheid, uh, but apartheid is a system. I'm, I'm sure that people are going to be, you know, people who may have stumbled on the show or whatever. Uh, they will be probably saying apartheid is a system of minority rule. So how can apartheid exist in a country where the population overall is not that of a white minority? Is apartheid in the U.S. localized in its urban centers? Well, recall our discussion a few years ago when I was discussing on these airwaves my book, White Supremacy Confronted, which has a detailed analysis of apartheid in South Africa. Recall that when apartheid was enacted in 1948, it was enacted in no small measure in order to protect the so-called white working class from competition from the black working class. It was designed to uplift the former as it drove the latter into the dust. If you look at this recent decision by the U.S. Supreme Court gutting affirmative action amongst others, fundamentally, you can expect that decision to migrate to the workplace. And that will serve to reinforce racial privilege, white racial privilege in the first place, uh, giving white applicants a leg up in terms of any competition with uh, non-white applicants, which is one of the reasons I suspect the decision has been so popular in diverse circles. Likewise, I don't think you can understand U.S. Jim Crow nor South African apartheid without understanding the concept of white supremacy, of which white racial privilege is just an aspect. Indeed, what I argued in that earlier book was that in some ways the United States outstripped apartheid South Africa because in apartheid South Africa, which was a regime that touted white supremacy, that was really a cover for Afrikaner supremacy. Afrikaners being the descendants of the original Dutch settlers with an infusion of French Protestantism in the late uh, 17th century. 
they were heavily anti-Semitic. In the United States, there has been much more of a synthetic version of whiteness. To be sure, there is anti-Jewish fervor in the United States, but I think it's also fair to say, as the governor of Illinois could well attest, that uh, the United States has gone the extra mile in combating uh, anti-Semitism, unlike uh, apartheid South Africa, which is one of the reasons why the regime began to crumble. Because it turns out that many of the leaders of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa happened to be Jewish, like Joe Slovo, who was head of the armed wing of Nelson Mandela's African National Congress, for example. So the comparison between South African apartheid and U.S. Jim Crow is entirely opposite. All right. Then you also write, it was in the late 1940s that the celebrated Howard University sociologist E. Franklin Frazier was made aware of the unavoidable as Washington became not only a global but hemispheric capital. The ingrained apartheid policies were out uh, there outraged numerous foreign visitors at, at a time when the U.S. was seeking to win hearts and minds abroad, as you were mentioning earlier. Ethiopians uh, would uh, found it next to impossible to book a room at a white hotel, while one enraged South Asian proclaimed, I would rather be an untouchable in the Hindu caste system than a Negro here. By your assessment, is that hyperbole? How can being black in America be worse than being part of a caste system? Is racism in the U.S. uniquely cruel and brutal? And is it recognized as such around the world? Well, the short answer is that it was recognized in diverse circles around the world as being a particularly hard form of socioeconomic organizing. It's oftentimes difficult to compare horrible aspects of diverse societies, like comparing the system of untouchables in South Asia and the system of Jim Crow in the United States of America. But I will say this, you know that I did a book on Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, which had a system of apartheid not dissimilar from that in South Africa. The white leaders in Rhodesia oftentimes clucked their tongues when espying lynching in the United States of America. Lynching is a horrible phenomenon that is something that even the races in Southern Africa uh, found uh, quite uh, befuddling. Uh, that is to say, the execution of black men and women uh, with no due process of law. Uh, there's a particularly hard case about a century ago in Georgia where a pregnant black woman is lynched and then the lynchers uh, carve her womb take out the fetus and stomp the fetus to death. Uh, this sort of horrible excess has been virtually unique to the United States of America, which makes it possible to suggest if there is an Olympics of racism and Olympics of horrors, the United States could well be awarded the gold medal. We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn. His new book is Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. And we will have an autographed copy of his book as part of our raffle coming up as a prize during our raffle at our This Is Hell 
anniversary and listener appreciation party happening on Saturday, July 22nd. So you write, eventually, Washington's rulers sought to pivot away from horrendousness, as described by the city's doyen, Mary Church Terrell. She said... Indians, Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos, and representatives of other dark races can find hotel accommodations as a rule if they pay for them. The colored man or woman is the only one thrust out of the hotels of the national capital like a leper. So in a 2016 Smithsonian article, it states that on February 28, 1950, 86-year-old Mary Church Terrell invited her friends, two black, one white, with her at Thompson's, a local cafeteria. The four entered, took their trays, and proceeded down the counter line. The manager told the group that the diner's policy forbade him from serving them. They demanded to know why they couldn't have lunch, and the manager responded that it was not his personal policy, but Thompson Companies, which refused to serve African Americans. The group left as chairwoman of the coordinating committee for the enforcement of the District of Columbia anti-discrimination laws. Terrell was setting up a test case to force the courts to rule on two lost laws that demanded all restaurants and public eating places in Washington serve any well-mannered citizen, regardless of their skin color. Over three drawn-out years, a legal battle followed, which ultimately took their case all the way to the America's highest court. This is five years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Washington or on a Montgomery bus, ten years before the Woolworth sit-ins in Greensboro. Did actions in Washington, D.C., during the very early stages of the civil rights movement, not only predate but influence actions around the United States. And and why do we know about Rosa Parks and Woolworths, but not as much about Terrell? Well, the short answer is yes. What happened on the national stage in Washington uh, did predate and to a certain extent shape and influence subsequent events, not least the demonstrations in Montgomery, Alabama, of which uh, Rosa Parks has become the leading symbol, that is to say the desegregation of busings, of buses. But there is a point that you mentioned earlier that bears reflection. And that goes back to my earlier point where I think that the radicals and certainly the liberals have made a mistake by not looking at slavery being at root a class question. Mary Church Terrell in that quote talks about how at a certain point in Washington's evolution, uh, South Asians and Japanese and Chinese could be patronized in hotels and restaurants, but not black Americans. As I said before, Washington was scrambling to make exceptions for Nigerian and Jamaican diplomats, and to a certain extent, students who were attending Howard universities, Howard University on the hilltop in Washington, DC, but not for black Americans. I don't think you can begin to explain this contradiction without understanding something that I thread throughout this book, Revolting Capital, which is that when slavery was abolished in 1865 or thereabouts, the slave owners were not compensated. Now, we talk about reparations for enslavement today. Evanston, Illinois, in your backyard has moved in that direction. There is a, a parallel attempt in the state of California. But uh, we rarely discuss, uh, to the chagrin and consternation of the descendants of slave owners, the fact that their property in human beings was taken without compensation. This helped to generate enormous uh, cyclonic antagonism and resentment 
towards black people generally, making it possible to explain the persecution of black people as being a reaction to having your property taken without compensation. Oftentimes when I explain this in classrooms, you know how classrooms nowadays are, uh, students as you're lecturing or fiddling with their smartphones. And I will go up to a student and snatch the smartphone out of their hand and say, this is what I'm talking about. I'm expropriating your property without compensation. You're angry, aren't you? You probably want to take me outside and give me a good dusting, don't you? Well, that's basically the scenario, not least in Washington, D.C., but I would argue throughout Dixie post-1865. It's a problem we still face today. I mean, look at this affirmative action decision. Uh, even though it was portrayed as being solely and exclusively a Black program, everybody knows that with regard to affirmative action, non-minority women are probably the most significant beneficiary, but they hardly entered into the discussion because of this fixation, if not obsession, about Black people, which I would argue not only stems from the usual tropes we hear about, this, this revulsion towards darker skin, but also to the class question. You have property taken in the billions without compensation, plunging many families into poverty, generating resentment anger, fury. Is that resentment, anger, and fury also aimed at the military-industrial complex? Because you write that the black Washington vicinity was a direct victim of U.S. imperialism, and not only in terms of tax dollars wasted on a failed regime in Tehran or on military spending generally. Queen City was a neighborhood of about 150 black American families founded in the 1880s that was disassembled so that the behemoth known as the Pentagon Citadel of U.S. imperialism could be constructed. I don't think that many people know that that was due to a racial cleansing, if you will, of the uh, Washington, D.C. area. That's why the Pentagon is where it is within the black liberation movement. Historically, how much has the military budget been viewed as a part of some sort of zero-sum game when it comes to resources that might mitigate inequality. That increased military spending means worse living conditions, infrastructure, and greater inequality for black Americans. How much is this viewed as a zero-sum game? I'm glad you raised that question because at the end of the month, we'll have the, uh, the meeting of the NAACP, the convention taking place in Boston. In 1950, at the NAACP, convention in Boston, you had a systematic purge of any to the left of liberalism. In the first place, that meant people who were sympathetic to the late, great Paul Robeson, actor, activist, socialist. Since that time, you've had a de facto political ecosystem in the United States, whereby liberal forces, like the leaders of the NAACP, refused to acknowledge allies on the left whereas their right-wing counterparts refuse to see enemies to their right. That helps to explain not only why there is so much sympathy amongst the leading Republican Party presidential candidates for the insurrectionists of January 6th, but it also sheds light on why there have been so many setbacks for these movements led by liberals. Because, for example, they refuse to make a major issue of the military industrial complex. In fact, the NAACP leaders, uh, by and large, supported the war in Vietnam uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. They're quiet as church mice about the hundreds of US bases, military bases abroad. 
you have left-wing forces, forces to the left of the NAACP leadership, who launched a campaign called Move the Money, whereby they want to move money from the Pentagon into education and healthcare. The NAACP, once again, has been absent from that fight. But once again, it's not accidental. You can trace it all back to 1950, this NAACP convention in Boston, Massachusetts, once again, at the end of July 2023, there will be an NAACP convention in Boston, Massachusetts. Once again, we expect many of our friends to the left of liberal to raise these questions. But sadly, once again, I don't expect in 2023, at least, that they'll gain much traction. So do you think the NAACP then is more of a race project or a class project? Or again, is that binary? Uh, does that have some sort of shortcomings? Well, I think they're both, but I think that they're failing on both fronts. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're a class project insofar as they're oftentimes an alliance with the AFL-CIO, which, by the way, endured a similar purge of those to the left of liberal in the 1950s. The NAACP represents a mostly working class constituency. Black Americans are overwhelmingly and predominantly workers who sell their labor for a wage in order to maintain housing and have food on the table. But it's a race project insofar as, for example, when I was doing research just a few days ago uh, in Boston, and I would walk into, actually, this was Cambridge, adjoining Boston, and I would walk into Enterprises, uh, even a bookstore that had a Black Lives Matter sign on the window. And when I walked in, you would think that I was an alien visiting from outer space. And this is in Cambridge, liberal town, Black Lives Matter uh, sign in the window. And it's not necessarily because I have gray hair. It's not necessarily because I'm a professor and therefore there's class resentment because they didn't know who I was. It was because of the color of my skin. So to that extent, the NAACP, when they campaign against such excesses and outrages, they're also pursuing a race project. So they're pursuing both, but not pursuing either very well. You also mentioned, you were talking about earlier, the impact that national lawmakers have on local policies within Washington, D.C., and you point out that Dixie, Dixie often sent to the district the most hardened white supremacists to the detriment of local residents. Would more democratic control, less influenced by national politicians on D.C.'s metropolitan policies, necessarily mean less of a police state in D.C.? Do national politicians insist they bring their race and class-based po police state with them from their home states? Well, it's hard to say at this point. I think it would have made a, a big difference some decades ago when you had the likes of Senator Theodore Bilbo of Mississippi, who was head and shoulders above the rest in terms of uh, spouting and exemplifying white supremacy. Uh, Congress put him in the position of being the de facto mayor because until quite recently, in recent years, have you had the move towards home rule, where Washington could have its own elected mayor? Uh, today, uh, given the fact that Washington has advanced pretty far down the road compared to 1947, for example, when it comes to anti-racism, I'm not sure if having more home rule in Washington is gonna have that much of an impact on national politics, although I am wholly in favor of more home rule for Washington, up to and including 
the current demand in Washington that Washington be a state with two U.S. senators that could tip the balance against the right wing, which is one of the reasons why it's going to be difficult to get that uh, legislation or even constitutional amendment passed. And as well, it could mean that the possibility of more of these right-wing Supreme Court justices like Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh could be confirmed if you had two U.S. senators from the Commonwealth of Douglas or the Douglas Commonwealth, the new D.C., Frederick Douglass, of course, being the man we're referring to, the great 19th century abolitionist who spent his waning years in Washington, D.C. You also mentioned the Red Scare of the post-war era, writing that by 1947, as the Red Scare was heating up and the Communist Party had yet to be weakened profoundly, communists and their allies were in support of a 50-building strike at the heart of power by these workers, which, according to scholar Mary Elizabeth Harding, was possibly the only example of an all-African-American union that supported the refusal of the leadership of the local to sign the non-communist affidavits and remained on strike for over two months until the issue was resolved. And in a, a signal development that pretended the weakening of both unions and the Communist Party, the NAACP declined to become active in the Citizens Support Committee in support of the cafeteria workers who are striking. So some critics are arguing that in the recent Greek elections at the end of last month that ended in a right-wing landslide, that was partly due to the more left-wing party's unwillingness to embrace a stronger class politics. How potent is Red Scare politics to this day, leading liberal and even leftists to not embrace class politics and in doing so, handing elections to those with conservative class politics? Is the opposition to conservatism unwilling to have class politics and giving elections to conservatives in doing so? Well, I think you're onto something, but I think we need to understand this phenomenon. I mean, for example, the NAACP would find it difficult to have any sort of conversations or discussions with me, even though in the academic community, uh, even in the wider black community, I'm viewed as a person who can contribute value to political discussions. But it's not only because of their encrusted anti-communism and anti-socialism, it's also because they feel that their donations would dip if they began to consort with those like myself. In other words, yes, you are correct. Uh, Anti-class politics, uh, anti-communism is still a reigning factor in U.S. politics. It helps to explain the ascendancy of the right wing. It helps to shed light on why the 45th U.S. president might very well become the 47th U.S. president in January 2025 not least because our friends who are liberals oftentimes will be reluctant, to put it mildly, to see allies and friends and comrades to their left, which weakens their overall project. But it has the advantage of making sure that they control the reins of power, because if they were to move away from that cockeyed uh, system that I've just explained, a person like myself might hold the reins of power, and they don't want that to happen. It would not be in their self-interest, narrowly speaking. So is the NAACP's anti-communist stance then one of survival? Would there not be an NAACP if they did not 
signed the affidavit signed the affidavit that said that they would not support communism. Well, I think you're onto something. I think there's the dilemma. The the fact is the NAACP is the longest, the most enduring civil rights organization because it's bent to political winds. It's bit bent to hurricane force like winds and currents. But the price that has been paid for that quote flexibility unquote has been ineptitude, has been ineffectiveness, raising questions as to whether or not the community they were sworn to defend would have been better served if they had pursued a different ideological approach. But there again, you have the problem. If they had pursued a different ideological approach, perhaps they would not be around to hold their convention in Boston at the end of the month. You mentioned the reparations program in Evanston, and I don't want to speak about that specifically, but I wanted to ask you a more general question. Can reparations be means-based? We just had the whole student debt debacle that just happened with a lot of people arguing we cannot have universal student debt, uh, if, you know, uh, allowing for people not to pay back their student debts. We can't have a universal program like that because then rich people are going to take advantage of it. Why should I pay for a millionaire student loan debts? So in the same uh, vein, when it comes to means-based reparations, can there be means-based reparations or do they need to be universal? I think it needs to be universal because I think that the calculation is that if you have means-based, for example, if you had means-based Social Security, saying that people who have uh, annual incomes over six figures or, lo and behold, seven figures should be excluded from Social Security, that weakens the politics, that weakens the political support. And we always, contrary to popular opinion, have to take into account that the United States has a powerful and potent right-wing force, and you cross that right-wing force or contradict that right-wing force or disregard that right-wing force at your own peril. So reparations faces a stiff, a stiff and steep uphill climb as it is, saying that it's going to be means-based and therefore excluding the you know the handful of black professors at Northwestern University, for example, would probably be driving a stake through its heart and therefore would be politically unwise. We have been speaking with historian Gerald Horn, whose new book is entitled Revolting Capital, Racism and Radicalism in Washington, D.C., 1900 to 2000. You can find all five of our past interviews with Gerald at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his name, Horn, H-O-R-N-E, and they are all absolutely free. As you know, our final question for each and every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, and I'm going to hate asking this question. You may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Oh, Gerald, I'm going to hate asking this. Is black liberation communist? <laughs> well, in part, insofar as there have been leading communists in the forefront of the black liberation movement. Uh, you mentioned my biography of Ben Davis. This is the black communist leader as opposed to the Tuskegee Airman. Uh, he was elected to New York City Council in 1943 re-elected in 1945 before falling victim to the Red Scare circa 1949 and jailed by 1951. So he was a leader of, of the black community. 
insofar as black liberation involves class politics, involves the redistribution of wealth per reparations, to that extent, it could be characterized as, quote, socialist or communist. But by and large, I think it's an error to slap that label on the black liberation movement because there are many people in the movement who are liberal. There are many people in the movement who are moderate. And in any case, slapping that label on the entire movement is a way to carry favor with the powerful anti-communist forces who mean ill for the black liberation movement in general. Gerald, it is always a distinct pleasure to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for all of your support. Thank you for coming on our show every year since 2018. We really appreciate it and uh, look forward to having you. Oh, wait, I know you're working on a new book. You're always working on a new book. What's your new book about? Next year, Armed Struggle, question mark, Panthers, Communists, Black Nationalism and Black Liberals in Southern California through the 1960s. So should Governor DeSantis be, work on cens- be working on censoring your book already? I'm sure he is. <laughs> All right. Gerald, it's always great to hear your voice. Thank you so much for being on the air, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Good luck. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. Keeping in mind that a lot of the questions I asked in 2023 were written while I was incredibly high, this is hell. If you enjoyed our conversation with historian Gerald Horn and all our talks with him over the past six years, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported this is hell by visiting this is hell and just clicking on support where you can find all the ways you can show your support again for this is hell rebecca please remind us what is this week's question from hell and do we have any new answers either at discord or i don't know where else anywhere else online uh what is this week's question from hell uh for our listeners this week's question from hell is what will you do after the fuel runs out what will you do after the fuel runs out and here on discord we have some great quest uh, answers here so we have from dig dug keep drifting on drifting's free <laughs> okay and then from kim g she says still be trying to think of a jokey response <laughs> in the dark <laughs> and from cam it says since haters are my fuel i'll be quite happy since all my haters are burning in hell with henry kissinger oh there you go and sarah in wisconsin says i will lay down and hugh says if we're talking long-term fuel i'd witness the death of the sun from the other side of the country club dyson sphere fence yep the rich kept that from themselves too oh uh-huh. Uh, and uh, from Mark A says, find something else to huff. <laughs> if you don't have fuel to huff, what else are you going to huff? <laughs> and then we have a couple more answers here on our Patreon page. Uh, from Essential, it says, complain to the manager. I like that one. <laughs> and then industrial quantities of sauerkraut. That was from Jamie Neen. Thank you, Jamie. And that's all she wrote. That's all we got for now? All right. So the answers I liked the most were on Patreon. Mason W. saying, walk 
What are you going to do when the fuel runs out? Riley says, work on myself. Altoona writes, start melting down my Lego sets for trace amounts of oil. Who knew? There are petrochemicals in Legos. I assume there's petrochemicals in everything. Essential saying, complain to the manager. That is really good. Kelly H saying, pedal faster. Anthony M saying, by then we'll be turning grandma and grandpa into biomass. It welcomed the hellhole. Aaron said, uh, harness the incredible power of the moon. Dan B said, perspire relentlessly. Dan B is in Texas, so... I guess that's what would happen there. Penn wrote, I'll finally have a legit reason to talk to the neighbors, which I really like. Discord On Discord, Mark A saying, finding something else to huff. Mark A, I would also suggest you get a new reg. And Kim G saying, still be trying to think of a jokey response in the dark. So, Will, Rebecca, any of those really stand out to you as your favorite answer to this week's question from hell? I always liked the walk answer. <laughs> I, yeah. I did like that too. So Mason W, you won the question from hell in 2023 and you're starting off 2024 with a bang. You are the winner of this week's question from hell. Again, what are you going to do when the fuel runs out? And the answer to his answer was walk. So congratulations, Mason. Just uh, tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we'll get that in the mail to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from Hell, what will you do after the fuel runs out? My guess is we will be forced into one of these three options. Starvation, cannibalization, or working together. And seeing as how the U.S. is obsessed with individualism and considering Americans' reaction to the COVID outbreak, that third working together option would seem to be out of reach. So it's either star- starvation or cannibalization here in the United States. Those are your two choices. It's like choosing between the Democrats and the Republicans. Thanks to Jeff with one F for suggesting this week's question from hell at the Welcome to the Hell Hole Facebook page. And thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell for the first question from hell of 2024. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And on Patreon this week, the holidays are over again, and they will return again but not for another year yes we have to wait an entire freaking year to celebrate again like we just did it's like our cruel world gives us a cruel taste of what our lives what freedom from work could be like only to throw us right back into the consuming salivating maw of capitalism sure we know capitalism is cruel but did you know capitalism even makes joyous times like the holidays we just celebrated with family cruel also on Patreon, we're playing an interview from nearly 20 years ago, back in 2004, I believe, 2003, 2004, when we spoke with Adam Shapiro, who at the time was leading a workshop on the international component of Palestinian nonviolent direct action at the National Conference on Organized Resistance in Washington, D.C. 
So yes, Palestinians and Israelis have been working together for peace, believe it or not, for over 20 years, despite what the media wants you to believe. Adam was on to tell us about his work with the International Solidarity Movement, a group that was featured prominently here on This Is Hell during the Second Intifada from 2000 to 2005. By that time, Adam had already been arrested by the Israeli police while demonstrating for peace in the Middle East. He was trapped with PLO leader Yasser Arafat during the one-month siege of the Church of the Nativity by the Israeli military, and Adam had his own parents' lives threatened due to his work for peace between Israelis and Palestinians, because when somebody's working for peace, you definitely want to threaten their life. Next week on Patreon, the following week, we'll, we will be doing a follow-up to this week's interview with Adam by playing a conversation from May 11th, 2002 with Ghassan Andoni, director of the Palestinian Center for Repro- Rapprochement Between People, an organization that assisted the international solidarity activists who were standing with the besieged people at the Church of the Nativity, where Adam had also been besieged. We spoke with Ghassan live from Gaza, who told us what was happening at the Church of the Nativity, which was a really weird moment for the radio show because I was given phone numbers of a whole bunch of different activists who were holed up in the Church of the Nativity. And I tried to call one and they didn't answer. And then I called another and they didn't answer. And they called another and they didn't answer. And I talked to people later on who were in the Church of the Nativity at that time. And they said it was hilarious because everybody's phone in the Church of the Nativity was going off one after another after another with my phone number. And the person who knew me had to explain to the other people in the room that it was me. (laughs) So it was very weird, just an odd moment in the history of This Is Hell. Rebecca, who are our guests during our first live shows of 2024 next week? Right, so next week's guests are Christopher Hood will be on to talk about his new book, Killing Detroit, the true story of American drug attack on black Detroit. And we will also be speaking with Jeffrey Wilson and Bambi Kramer, who have created We Live Here, Detroit Eviction, Defense, and the Battle for Housing Justice. It's a graphic novel biography of the members of the local activist group Detroit Eviction Defense and their efforts to combat and beat calls for their eviction. And I believe we are going to also be speaking with historian Rick Perlstein. He has just posted his first article for the American Prospect and wanted to know if we would be uh, able to have him on the show uh, now that he's writing for the American Prospect, and I believe that he will be our guest next week, next Wednesday. This is how office hours, our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, happen every Wednesday night throughout January at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Despite the cold, our regularly scheduled office hours return this week to Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon Avenue. It always begins around 6 in the evening, and we hope to see you there, despite the inclement weather this time of the year in Chicago. This Is Hell has been named a finalist as Chicago's best podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll. Also, me, your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream, and podcast host Chuck Mertz has been nominated as a finalist in the same poll as Best Radio DJ. You can now vote for us under the City Life category at chicagoreader.com slash best. Polls are open through January 14th 
2024, and the winners will be announced sometime in February. So if you want to really bother the hell out of Chicago's corporate establishment media, vote for Completely Listener Supported This Is Hell as Best Podcast, and me, Chuck Mertz, as Best Radio DJ, under the City Life category at chicagoreader.com slash thisishell. Thanks to Rebecca Ridnour for producing today's show. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing earlier this week, as well as shadowing Rebecca. Thanks to Chris Coolfan for also producing this week. Thanks to our correspondents, Sebastian Vupper, uh, Jeff Dorchin, as well as Ronaldo Magaldi, who does This Week in Rotten History. Thanks to everybody who has worked on the show in 2023, and we look forward to a fantastic 2024. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast, host Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we introduced to you on this week's set of shows and throughout the Best of 2023 series and that is by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid My demon is on my butt (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride thank you for listening to this is hell for more interview hell and to support the show visit thisishell.com <laughs>